Well, welcome to Graceway Baptist Church. This is our midweek service, and uh, we continue through the Psalms. So go ahead and take your Bible and turn to Psalm 79. Psalm 79. And um, be sure you get the newsletter. Be sure that you're up on events in the church. Things are changing, and um, activities and times and all of that kind of stuff you need to be aware of. And for those things that you find that don't necessarily apply to you, pray for the people to whom it does apply. I would ask you to pray especially about uh, our students and upcoming camp for this summer and pray that they can get everything worked out and pray that God will bless and move mightily in the lives of teenagers and stop and think about how many things that God taught you. Think about some of the things that God used to draw you to himself. Think about decisions that you made and that ideas and maybe life philosophies that you formed as a teenager, and you didn't even know you were doing it until later on. And think about how so many good memories, fun memories, and how many serious things took place when you were uh, a teenager. And think about the times in which we live. Boy, do they ever need to be covered in prayer and pray for Isaac and Jenny and uh, the sponsors and others. And just pray that they have a great summer and that God moves mightily um, in their life. And do the same for our children. Pray for them. Who knows what kind of a world this is going to be when they are our age. And uh, I, I tend to think that those who are in our nursery, our children's program, and our student program, they may be among the first generations of Americans to actually face persecution that we can't even fathom. And so we need to be praying for them as God raises up an army out of them to do things that we never even would imagine or think about in our own lives. And yet we can equip them and we can pray for them and we can get to know them and uh, encourage them. You can be a part of that and I hope that you will be. Pray for people who are sick. People are going through uh, various things. For over a year, we were really focused on COVID. Now, as those numbers tend to die down, let's not forget about them, because while overall, statistically, things may not be as serious, there's not near as many people in the hospital, for example, but if you get it, or someone you love gets it, it can be devastating to their lives. So don't forget to pray for them. But also don't forget there are other things going on as well in people's lives. And I do appreciate your prayers for me. People ask me uh, every week, how are you doing? And uh, I appreciate that so much. But I'll be honest, I don't know how to answer it because there's been little change. And uh, the doctor told me, I probably won't notice any real change for about six to nine months. There you go. 
So uh, anyway, I appreciate you continuing to pray and pray for others who are battling cancer and people who are battling other uh, forms of heart disease and uh, having stents and different things like that. It just goes on and on and on. That's the way it is when you live on planet Earth. But one day, one day, we'll be in a place where there will be no pain or sickness or sorrow or anything like that. And let's focus on that. But in the meantime, pray and minister and let's bring glory to God and not waste these situations. I uh, have thought about something uh, that I uh, would appreciate your prayers. And um, I have a team of people between doctors and nurses, cardiac rehab, that kind of thing, who have a vested interest in me to keep my heart going. I wear this uh, thing here, this cardiac vest, to keep me from having, as one doctor said, a fatal cardiac event. Okay, so as much as I hate this thing, I've turned that around and I've said, Lord, thank you for this because uh, I hope I never have to experience it. But if it does, good. I'm glad I have a little bit of protection. Well, as I think about all of the things that I'm going through and all of the things the doctors want me to do, and I think about, oh my, the medicine that I take, I've gone from taking just very, very little minimal medicine to taking a whole handful of it twice a day. Never thought I'd be in that situation, but it helps and it works and it keeps everything going. It keeps me alive. So instead of griping about it, I need to take it. Haven't quite gotten to this point yet and say, Lord, bless this and thank you for it. Um, but I'll get there. And to see all of this through the eyes of God. Now, what I want to do is I want to write a letter to give to each one of my doctors, to the nurses and uh, others, to tell them the real reason my heart beats and uh, share the gospel with them and tell them how much I appreciate them and how God is using them. Try to keep it short and sweet so they'll actually read it but to uh, express appreciation to them, but to let them know the real reason my heart beats is for what I'm doing right now, to preach and to proclaim the word of God to anybody who will listen. And by the way, thank you for listening. So would you pray with me about that? Because I don't want to waste this time. Dixie Walker, some of you remember her. She came up to me one time when she was going through chemotherapy. And I said, Miss Dixie, I'm so sorry you're having to go through that. And she goes, oh, Brother Greg, don't be sorry. God has a plan. God has a purpose. And I get to witness to people that I would never meet because of what I'm going through now. Boy, I wish we all had that kind of attitude. John Piper had prostate cancer, and he wrote a, an article. I think he may have preached a sermon that uh, was entitled, Don't Waste Your Cancer. And so whatever it is you're going through, got rebellious children, don't waste it. That's an opportunity to reach out. Are you grieving? Don't waste it. That's an opportunity to reach out. And on and on and on we could go. And so I encourage you to do that and pray for me because I'm going to do my best to use this for the glory of God. 
won't always be successful. And there are going to be times when I'm going to be like everybody else, self-centered and selfish and focused inward. But by the grace of God, he'll be able to turn that around and I'll be more outward focused. And uh, this will lead to other opportunities. And that can happen in your life, whatever you're going through as well. And so we don't live in denial. We face our trials. They're real. We don't live in a superstitious, lucky charm, say the right things and everything will be okay kind of world. A lot of preachers will teach you to do that even. We live in a, a world where we face the fact that what we are going through is in the hand of a sovereign God who orders our steps. So we're in this situation for more than just, oh, the consequences of sin. We're in this because we can glorify God in and through this situation. We can have opportunities to witness. We can have opportunities to encourage other believers in this situation. So whatever it is you're going through, don't waste it. Face it and use it for the glory of the Lord. Well, now we turn to the Word of God and we open up our Bibles to uh, Psalm 79. And I want to open by saying the title of this is You Think You've Got Problems. And why do I say that? Because all of us in our depravity, we have a tendency to take our situation and magnify it that mine is worse than anyone else and my suffering is worse and different than anyone else. Boy, nobody's ever been through what I've been through before. Now, can I remind you, the Bible says that your sufferings are not unique, that your brotherhood in the world are going through the same things. In fact, Scripture doesn't say this, but Mama did. If you look, you can find somebody who's worse off. I was walking on my treadmill at my cardiac rehab and thinking, man, I hate doing this. Man, I wish I didn't have to worry about this. I wish my heart was stronger. I wish that physically I was stronger. I wish I felt good again. And I looked over and I saw a man who might have been younger than me. And he was on a treadmill at the other end of the room. And he was walking so incredibly slow, much slower than I was. When I get on mine, I set it up and um, get it going. And I walk at a pretty good clip. And I also have it inclined a little bit that makes it harder. And I go for 30 minutes three times a week without stopping and um, try to walk on the in-between days in my neighborhood. Now, it wears me out. Once I get through with it, I feel like I've taken a Benadryl. Uh, man, my mind is kind of foggy, and I'm tired. And when I sit down and get still, I'm probably going to fall asleep. 
So I'm not up to par by any means, but at least I can do that. This poor man did what he did for just maybe five minutes, and then he had to get off, and he had to rest. And the people there that monitor everything were with him. They were encouraging him. And uh, I remember thinking as I was walking, wishing that mine were over, I thought about him, and I said, at least I'm not in that kind of shape. He may have just had open-heart surgery or something like that. I don't know uh, his situation, and they really can't tell you. But it was just a reminder that things can always be worse. When we tend to think about ourselves, we try to make ourselves um, to kind of be the center of the universe. You know, when you're in pain, you don't really tend to pray for other people in the way that you should. But you feel like that you're in a situation that um, is unfixable. We also kind of feel like, and the enemy whispers in our ear, it's always going to be this way. There's nothing better. This is your life, and this is your life for the rest of your life. Boy, that's a hopeless feeling, isn't it? And it, uh, you know, it's just permanent. God's not going to hear your prayer. God's not going to do anything. You're just stuck. Well, that, of course, is the way hell is, but that's not the way life is here on earth. And whatever it is you're going through is probably going to get better, probably going to resolve itself. You're probably going to be able to adapt to it, to accept it, and use it for something positive. You say, well, what if I don't? Then you go to heaven. And if you go to heaven, how in the world is that a defeat? That is the ultimate victory, isn't it? Now, why do I say all that? Because this is written by a guy named Asaph. We've talked about him before. And this is written sometime um, in uh, 500, nearly 600 years before Christ's coming. It's written hundreds of years after King David ruled and reigned. Uh, this is much later. And we get into verse 1, and you can kind of hear the way he, uh, this is a psalm of lament, okay? He's not happy with the situation that he's in. He's not happy with what he sees, and he's going to call on God to change it. Listen to it. Oh God, the nations have come into your inheritance. That means the Gentiles have come into Israel, his inheritance, Israel. Your holy temple they have defiled. They have laid Jerusalem in heaps. The dead bodies of your servants they have given as food for the birds of the heavens, the flesh of your saints to the beasts of the earth. Gruesome. Verse 3, their blood they have shed like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become 
a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and derision to those who are around us. Good heavens, what in the world has happened that could be described like that? I was reminded of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3 through 5. And the reason I was reminded of this is because we can complain like we're in the worst of times, the worst of circumstances. Has it ever been this bad? Has it ever been this hard? And yet we're clothed well. We're warm in the winter. We're cool through our air conditioning in the summer. We have electric lights. We have transportation that is reliable. We have plenty of food. In fact, that's why we have to try to watch our weight because we eat too much. And our life is so easy. And yet because of who's president or because of policies that are passed through Congress, and I don't mean to minimize any of that, but I don't want to maximize it either. And we act like we're living in such troubled, horrible times. Yet who of you listening to this has experienced anything like what Asaph is talking about? Now, maybe we'd get a taste of it if we lived in inner city New York, New York City, or inner city Chicago, and maybe some of you have. But even that is not described in the way Asaph described it. Heaps of bodies, buzzards, vultures, eating the flesh off of those bodies, the wild beast eating the other parts of it, and blood flowing like water. Even in the worst of circumstances, there might have been a glimpse or a taste of it, but we haven't seen anything like that. And that's why, think about these verses. Hebrews 12, 3 through 5. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. That would be Jesus. So that you may not grow weary nor faint-hearted in your struggle. Against sin you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Why? Because what God does starts off negative. It's because of our disobedience. But it ends up positive because as a father, he is correcting us. But the emphasis I want to make is you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. The writer of Hebrews wasn't writing to dead people, was he? Writing to people who were alive. And he is reminding them that things could get worse. And if God allows that, trust him that he knows what he's doing. And I thought that's so much like us. We tend to think if our car won't start, Things couldn't be any worse, could they? If the weather gets really cold, how could things possibly be worse? And we make a molehill into a mountain, don't we? And so we don't need to do that. And so the point of taking this psalm and this particular lesson is to remind us 
things could be worse, a lot worse. And so when I think about what the children of Israel in this situation are going through, think about all of the warnings that they had. If you sin in the promised land, God has told them over and over, I'll take you out. Now, he didn't do that at once, and he didn't do it soon. Hundreds of years, God's a patient God. But he warned them, and uh, we'll go over this. Hopefully, it'll be interesting to you. He warned them through Moses. Moses warned the people of Israel that they would be delivered into the hands of their enemies if they did not keep the Sabbaths of the Lord, even the land Sabbath that we talked about on a Sunday morning in Exodus. Deuteronomy 28:49. Now this is Moses writing even before they're in the promised land. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away from the end of the earth swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand. What was he prophesying? Well, he didn't know exactly what he was prophesying, but he was prophesying the Babylonians, King James calls them Chaldeans, coming in under Nebuchadnezzar, and um, that's going to cause significant problems for the Jews in Israel, swooping in like an eagle. He also prophesied it through the prophet Micah. Micah was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah, and um, he proclaimed in the book of Micah, especially in chapter 4, verse 10, the uh, capture of Israel by Babylon, as well as their rescue. God never leaves his people without hope, does he? In Micah 4.10, it says, Writhe and moan and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon, where you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now notice specifically how pain and suffering is going to come upon the people. But he's also saying some are going to be taken captive and they're going to go to Babylon and the Lord will rescue Israel out of Babylon. Daniel is one of those who's going to be taken to Babylon, taken captive. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego are going to be taken captive and other people as well. The prophet Jeremiah also warned them. You remember Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. They threw him into a cistern. They put him in stocks. They um, imprisoned him. All kinds of things. His ministry was to no avail. If you judge a preacher's ministry by the amount of success he has, the numbers that he attracts, then you would judge Jeremiah uh, to be a failure. Um, he had a tough tough ministry. And yet he obeyed the Lord despite the brutal and adverse reaction that he received from his own people. 
King uh, Zedekiah had the chance, uh, the choice to listen to the Lord's warnings, and yet he didn't. He could have had remorse, he could have repented, and yet he didn't. And Israel paid mightily for that. He preferred to listen to the false prophets instead of listening to Jeremiah, the true prophet of God. Now we find in Jeremiah 29, verses 10 through 13. Now you're going to hear a very familiar verse in all of this, and you better take it to heart and think about the context in which we find it. For thus says the Lord, then 70 year, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, back to Israel. Why is God going to do that? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Now, we lift that out so many times just out and say, oh, life is going to be great. God put it in the context of you're going to be conquered, you're going to be overthrown, you're going to be captive in Babylon, and it's going to last for seven decades. Then I will visit you and bring you back into the land because I know the plans I have for you. And that plan included the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem and the walls of Jerusalem and the death of many, many people and the captivity of many others who would not live long enough to come back into the land. God is just simply saying, regardless of what you see, feel, or experience, my promises and my plans for Israel do not change. So you may take and claim Jeremiah 29, 11 to go into your worst situation. Uh, that's the context. And he says, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. That's what God is using this captivity and destruction and exile to bring Israel to. So they would quit worshiping idols and playing games with God in the temple. And they would come to the point where they mean what they say and say what they mean. A good lesson for us. Even Isaiah warned them. Uh, years before all of this happened, when uh, King Hezekiah ruled, messengers from Babylon came to visit him. And Hezekiah was very proud of his city, very proud of his kingdom, very proud of the temple. And so he showed them everything, all the treasures in the land. Now, when Isaiah heard about this, he prophesied in Isaiah 39, verses 5 through 8, that everything that King Hezekiah so proudly displayed to the Babylonians would be taken away by them. Now, understand, when Isaiah wrote this, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, were just considered a weak, insignificant uh, tribe, I guess you would say. They were nomads living in tents and moving around from place to place. Nobody took any of this uh, seriously. And yet hundreds of years 
this De Isaiah prophesied um, even to the point of the capture of Daniel, didn't he? Isaiah 39, 5 through 7. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord of hosts. And some of your own sons, meaning his descendants, who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Well, that's just devastating news. Hezekiah might say, well, at least it's not in my lifetime. But it is going to happen, and it may have taken hundreds of years, but it indeed is what happened. And so I want you to think about Psalm 79 like this. This will be very quick. These first four verses um, are just giving us a little history. And think about the invasion. The nations, Gentiles, have come into the inheritance of God. They plundered the temple. Now, you remember stories about where a Jewish well-meaning person touched the ark and they died. But these godless pagan Gentiles come into the temple and rob it of its gold and its silver and they don't die. As if God has taken his hand and withdrawn his glory from that place. The nations have come into your inheritance, your holy temple they have defiled, and they have laid Jerusalem in heaps, piles of rubble, the gates, the walls, the temple, all of those kind of things are just piles of rock and rubble because of the invasion of these Babylonian or Chaldean people. Secondly, think about the irony. The dead bodies of your servants. Now, I'm sure some of them were, but I saw irony in that. The reason that there's so much destruction, bloodshed, devastation, and the overthrow of the king of Judah and uh, them being under the sovereignty of Babylon now is not because they were servants. The problem is they were not servants of God. The problem is they were serving Baal and Ashtaroth and Moloch and other gods of the Canaanites. That's the problem. And so that strikes me as a little bit of irony here. The good people, in other words, suffer with the bad. Your sin has an effect on people who are not, well, people who are living right. Your sin in the church has an effect. Your compromise in the church has an effect upon the church and all that we try to do. Your sin and compromise, even if it's secret sin, has an effect upon our state and upon our nation and the world in which we live. Now, not everyone was disobedient. Daniel and his friends were innocent of what had caused the destruction of the nation of Israel, and yet they had to suffer as well. Sin hurts people, 
and it hurts them everywhere. Thirdly, I want you to notice the desecration. They kill these people, and then they don't bury them. To the Jew, what you do with the body of a dead person is extremely important. It was honored, it was cared for, it was washed, it was anointed, and then it was buried. You see, to the Jews, they would never think of cremating uh, someone. They would never think of simply leaving a corpse on a cross, for example. They wanted them taken down, you remember, at the crucifixion. They would never think of leaving them just out in the open to rot, decay, or to be food for vultures. That was disgraceful to them. And the Bible says, they have given as food for the birds of the heavens the flesh of the saints to the beast of the earth, and their blood they have shed like water all around, uh, all around Jerusalem. And there was no one to bury them. This really bothered Asaph. The pagans didn't care. In fact, not only did the pagan Babylonians not really care, but they did that on purpose. They would purposely leave bodies out to become grotesque. You know, sometimes we walk past a casket now that's been cleaned and embalmed, and we look at it, oh, don't they look good? Don't they look natural? Well, they wouldn't if they had not been embalmed, right? You think about what it must have been like for these Israelis to walk by people that they knew, people that they were related to, and to watch that corpse grotesquely be eaten or to succumb just to decay. And the Babylonians did that because they wanted to horrify and they wanted to subdue the Israelis and they wanted to take all the fight out of them because the inference here is this is your fate if you defy the king and the laws of Babylon. And you know what? It's pretty effective. Pretty effective. It would be for me. And number four, notice the humiliation. Israel, this proud nation. Israel, this strong nation. Israel, this wealthy nation under the blessing of God. What happened? The humiliation. We have become as a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and a derision to those who are around us. So instead of the other nations going, wow, Israel's God must be strong, they laughed. In their minds, the God of Israel has been defeated by the God of the Babylonians. God has been dishonored in everything that's going on, and the Jews are being mocked. Terrorists can come in and out of their cities because there are no walls. They can come and they can see the temple that was one of the wonders of the ancient world as it lays in a heap of rubble. Humiliation. Now, understand this. Where is God in all of this? And this is how we'll conclude. Well, he warned them. We've already seen that. Then he proved his word. He showed them he wasn't messing around giving empty threats. Is that a threat? No, 
it's a promise, we might say to someone. Well, that's what God is saying through all of this. I said what I meant, and I meant what I said. He exposed their sin, and he disciplined it. They couldn't hide anymore behind the temple and behind their rituals. You have served false gods. You have disobeyed my law, my rules, and violated my Sabbaths. Now you are going to pay for it in a very severe way. But he had warned them. They knew this was coming. At least they should have. And he took them into exile. And yet at the same time while he's doing that, Jeremiah 29, 11, he gives them hope. This isn't going to last forever. I've not abandoned you. And I've got a future planned for you that you cannot even begin to imagine. So I hope this encourages you to face your problems and your storms and your trials a little more realistically. But I also pray that it gives you hope. This is not the end. It's not all over. You've got all of this in heaven too. And this is your opportunity to glorify God in the midst of a tough situation like Daniel did, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. Do it. Glorify God. And understand that at best, it's a temporary situation. God is going to take you to heaven. Or God is going to fix this in your lifetime. And you're going to see the glory of God. Focus on that. Well, thank you for your time. And I hope this has blessed you, fed you, and um, encouraged you. And I really appreciate your prayers, your support, your giving, your attendance, and you taking time to listen to this. God bless you. And thank you once again.